Thank you. I actually have a um, more or less a difficult task because the, the two papers before me were grounded papers. One is in, in intellectual history and the other one is in field research. So my paper for you might just sound a little bit speculative and somewhat performative. Um, the, um, I'll start directly by talking about what I call state tutelage and the nature of the revolution. Um, presumably talking about Tunisia here. So the two uh, uh, 2011 revolution, 2010 and 2011 revolution in Tunisia presents us with a telling paradox. Now history teaches us that revolutions and law are not exactly soulmates. In general, in general, revolutions worry very little about law, especially common law. How can we then explain that the first instant after 2011 in Tunisia was what I call, I'll be calling legalism? People worried about how to have a legal transition, how to set legal bases for the new institutions, basically how to regulate what is inherently beyond or against regulation. Revolutions are against regulation. The country was turned over to lawyers. I don't know if that's, if that's necessarily a good thing. So let's see. What's wrong with our system today? Because hmm? I, I wanted to show you the names of the commissions. OK, so that's fine. I'll just use that. So it was turned over to the commissions. There are three commissions that were all headed by uh, lawyers. And I'll be focusing on the last one. There are at least two explanations for this legal turn in the revolution. One is historical, while the other is political. Let me start with what I call the pedagogical state. As early as the late uh, 1950s, the first president of independent Tunisia, Habib Bourguiba, and labor and cultural leaders contemporary to him, saw themselves as educators. The, need, the people needed tutelage into modern life, including respect for the law, so they set about teaching and preaching, leaving no issue of limits. Bourguiba moved famously around the country and dominated local radio and television, talking about family planning, clothing and smart dress, disease, treatment of wives, health, education, and even sex. His government set in motion the legal framework for a modern nation, between quotes, of course. The strategy was a top-down approach by which laws preceded rather than reflected or followed people's, people's expectations. So emboldened by his overwhelming popularity as a nationalist leader, Bourguiba mobilized his rhetorical prowess and acting skills to mold a population at his own image. But in time, that molding soon came to serve his own vanity and cause him paranoia. For what he came to fear most was challenges to his place in the collective memory of Tunisians and dissidents from his line of thought by those he considered his sons. What he really feared is prodigal sons. The story of legalism in Tunisia is rather long, but since but come 2011, Tunisians were trained into obedience to a law designed more to dominate them than to actually enable them. A law manipulated and corrupted by Bourguiba's successor, Zin al-Abidin ben Ali. So, if, uh, so Bourguiba was a lawyer, and the current president of Tunisia sitting here on the left, on my left, is actually a lawyer, Sibsi, but the Zin al-Abidin definitely not a lawyer. He was a general. Now, the, uh, the story, of course, uh, uh, I mentioned, the, the early opposition, 
was dissent from the state's policies was not necessarily a rejection from the state. So the group perspective, which is a left-wing association of young activists uh, between, uh, who were active between 1963 and 75, for some of you may know, uh, Foucault actually wrote about these people. They claimed their rights to full citizenship and considered the project of independent state to be unfinished or to be inconsistent with its own aims. Gilbert Nakash, to whom I will return, found the arbitrariness and cruelty of his imprisonment unlawful. I am in prison, he says, innocent of any action against the law for the ideas or intentions, yes, but these are not punishable by law. Without a judge's order, without sentence, in the name of empty accusations, which would be abandoned upon a decision from Bourguiba in a letter handed to me 14 years later. The legalism which influenced the developments of a popular constitutionalist culture in the country over a long period of time may have led to what Ayad Ben Ashur, who is the head of that commission I mentioned, calls constitutionalist revolution in his recent book, Tunisie, Une Révolution en Pays d'Islam. Ben Ashur claims that in Tunisia, the primacy of the political imposed itself by the fact that the power was affected only in part, the highest part, by the revolution. This allowed levels of continuity between the old and the new orders, and eventually proponents of reconciliation won the day. Now we have here, he says, one of the fundamental paradoxes of the Tunisian revolution. The revolution took place, therefore one must punish and uh, and, and try, this, uh, but the revolution must continue without risking war, therefore we have to compromise. He used the term pactisé. Now this would give priority to political order without sacrificing responsibility. In a word, what we call transitional justice is in a sense a transactional justice. In Tunisia, the transitional period was the subject of intense and continues to be of political and social debate and pressure. It was chaotic and piecemeal, and reflected in many ways the balance of, uh, of power in, in the place. But it enjoyed constitutional uh, backing. And, and you will see uh, here that, for example, this is a constitutional part of the constitution that actually uh, promulgates the, 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 uh, the, uh, uh, the transition justice in the country. Ben Ashur concludes, in reality, the great debate around transitional justice, as well as the conflict resulting from them, bring to light the specificities, some would even say weaknesses of the Tunisian revolution. Neither ideological nor partisan nor belligerent, it is situated in a half-tinted zone, marked by half-measures, lack of clarity, and the, the hesitations between more or less radical solutions. In fact, the crisis of transitional justice is revealing of a more general political choice between exclusion and reconciliation. It is amidst this debate that a new constitution was constructed. The making of the new constitution served as the best training for full citizenship. It revealed what Ghazi Lghrairi, another uh, constitution law, uh, lawyer called society, was anxious about its rights, conscious of its force, and able to compel the political class to act under its effective control. Ben Ashur concludes, the real impact of the revolution is this. The society is no longer under the tutelage as it was in the time of Bourguiba. So the, the, tutelage, the tut tutor state, in a sense, ended. If we accept this assessment, we can understand that uh, while the revolution reopened 
old wounds and revived appetite for revenge, it also restrained, some would say manipulated public mood by mobilizing a local tradition of legality compounded with international pressure to contain this first uh, all-out revolution in the uh, uh, post-independence uh, uh, period in the Middle East and the Arab world. As the struggle against impunity continued with varying degrees of intensity but limited success, memory battles raged on, waged by all sides, along with the battles to preserve the spaces of freedom necessary to do these battles. But whatever the outcome, local history has become available for construction and revision, and people felt entitled to their narratives and empowered to put their cases within a liberated field, one which soon and very quickly grew up to be very competitive. I have dealt with a number of these aspects in other papers. For the present occasion, I zero in on one particular corpus. Through this corpus, I single out three broad areas where convergence between law and writing is tested. They also highlight tensions and zones of shade for law and for transitional justice, which writing seeks to enlighten or to fill. Now, the corpus is restricted to writing by prisoners during and after their incarceration experience. Two key points must be borne in mind in this selection. Aleida Asman argues in uh, an article called Memory, Individu Individual and Collective, that autobiographical memory of events experienced in one's lifetime have a powerful impact and provide higher status for victims of events. The second element is the age of these uh, writers when events took place. A study show how events occurring in a generation's early adulthood seem to have particularly powerful impact on their collective memory and political outlook for, for the rest of their lives. For example, for perspective, 200 of them who were arrested and tried in 1974, they were all between the ages of 19 and 20, 32. The poet Ammar Mansour, one of them, who was incarcerated at age 23, distinguishes between two moments of writing, which he gives us, which according to him gives us two types of writing by prisoners. He says, my prison memoirs are only the poems I have written in prison. My, mem my memories written after jail are a different matter, which concerns the consciousness of that moment historically, culturally, and philosophically. So when he published his prison papers, he did so, quote, without changing a comma or a period. This one is what he, one of the poems he published. It's actually written with uh, matches, because he had access to pen, and the, and the ink is actually ashes fixed, uh, combined with water. That's what this is one about. Then he smuggled them out uh, and, and later published them. The person I was at age 20 or 30, he says, is not me at age 60. That person may not, may, may not uh, uh, be me or actually is another. He said, I feel protective of that person, but I don't own that person. But he, he reflects a specific consciousness at a specific period of history, which we should neither embellish nor manipulate. Now much, of course, has been said about representing one's pain and trauma, as well as representing the pain of another, notably debates instigated by Kutsia, carried further by Butler and others. But my focus on these types of accounts is also motivated by what I call specific ethical considerations and 
epistemological ones. I see my role as that of solidarity, which prevents me from participating in perpetuating censorship through certain discursive academic practices, which tend to obscure and often seek to replace those it should enable. Therefore, my work is conceived in part as a forum for their free expression, not yet one more prison house of language. In the Tunisian case, and more widely, these people liberated my voice, and I feel the need to express my gratitude. That gratitude should not, of course, preclude critique and rigor, but neither should it fall into the traps of privilege and narcissism of the kind we see all too often in academic practice. For if anything, the lesson of these prison narratives and testimonies should be humility. Every little scratch on a prison cell was, in the end, yet one more statement in a counter-narrative or an alternative one, and thereby one more nail in the coffin of repression. In addition, these people have reflected on and produced knowledge about not only their societies, but also the incarceration experience, about writing, about humanity in general, and I think that knowledge needs to be acknowledged and given the status it deserves, and that's why I deal with Amar Mansour alongside, for example, Judith Butler or Kutsia. Now I move to talk about what I call collaborative testimony, the uses and the limitations. Perspectivists that I talked about in, in, in particular offer a most complete case where uh, ever since uh, Gilbert Nakash who published his book which is on the cover of the poster for this conference that was published in 1982, they advocate a practice what they call collaborative writing and collective remembering. Collaborative writing is so prevalent among them that it's almost a rite of passage. Why do perspectives insist on this collective writing? how much of it has to do with their specific and perhaps unique prison experience of group incarceration, uh, learning, and solidarity. Beyond the individual and group therapeutic functions of writing, the stated aim has often been called accuracy and impact. There is, in this activity, a care to build a collective case and a unified record by multiplying sources, cross-checking, and so on. This is, in a sense, a legalistic activity aimed at corroboration of accounts, fact-checking, and evidence. The cohesion of the group, or at least the record of that cohesion, was important to them. And they set about doing that, motivated by the breakup of their organization in the mid-70s, the authoritarian turn in the state, and the rise of Islamist opposition at the time. For Ammar Zemzmi, another person of the group, documentation is made more urgent by the passing away of several of his uh, comrades, several witnesses. In addition to personal memory of events, he relies on a number of sources, entries of whom his journal he kept in prison from 69 to 79, 71. Various other things he puts, he basically tried to record uh, everything, I'll come back to that one. That's various, various things that he kept a, a record of, for example. This one I like, uh, this one I like because I don't like it anymore. Um, it, it's, it's basically because uh, part of the things that were, that were uh, held, you know, when you go to prison, 
basically they, they say, what belongings do you have? Let's have them for you in a safekeeping. One of them actually had keys, identity card, and one poetry book. That's why I was interested in it. Anyway, I'll, I'll return to that. Let's not be distracted by it. So he says that uh, to complete the picture, he calls on others to check, correct, enrich, and clarify what he uh, uh, sets out to do. There is an obvious archival value, obviously, to this enterprise. And there is even a legal force to it, although I'm not really aware that it has actually been used in a, in a court of law. But collective writing leaves part of the incarceration experience unaccounted for. Belhaj Yahya, when one of them speaks of prison, particularly solitary confinement, as an experience situated beyond the capacity of collective writing or even solidarity. He says, prison is an individual solitary experience impossible to write collectively, no matter how strong the unity and the solidity, solidarity of the, of the group. For pain, loneliness, sexual misery, the need of the body for warmth and things for which are things for which you can accept no substitution or postponing inside yourself. Embodied memory, speaking of body, embodied memory and untainable justice. In forgetting the embodied past, body memory and transitional justice, Teresa Coloma Beck recognizes that torture being violence directed to the body as well as the psyche defies representation in the sense that a representational memory remembers the past from the starting point of the present. But body memories is about the effect of the past on the body. And here she mentions th things that people acquire, like, for example, they can't sleep uh, with a door open, or they repeat certain gestures, or a fear of the darkness, and so on. So body memory is, is, is basically about the effect of that. It enacts the past in the present. So inevitably, it is in talking about torture that language and narrative seem to lose their capacity not only to articulate pain, but also to convey an argument for justice. Uh, Elaine Scarry has argued that the case by talking about physical pain does not only exist, does not only resist language, but actively destroys it, bringing about an immediate reversion to a state anterior to language, to the sounds and cries a human being makes when language is, le is learned. In literature, as in visual arts, the distance between the experience of torture and representation is impossible to bridge. But we know that Kutsia, for example, uh, Solomon Godot and others have written persuasively about this point. Yet, it is this untranslatability which should compel us to speak about torture. And indeed, it has. And that's why you will have seen here some of the pictures I have. The torture of Bogreb, for example, Bogreb has been represented in art famously, as you know, by Botero. Now, uh, the uh, perspectivist Muhammad Salah Flis, one of the group, uh, and many others may describe their ordeals in excruciating detail or simply gloss over their pain or even shrug it off. Yet, they often name not their pain, but their tortures. They resist grief and show how they manage to overcome, but do not resist the urgency to accuse. Fleece names those, those who tortured him in one session, which left him unable to stand on his feet for 92 days. He names these people, and I would like to name them too. And I would like, actually, to, to help me name and shame Abdesalam Darouth, 
محمد البوهلي عبد المجيد الخميري حسن عبيد For Fleece, on recall, of course, at a distance from his ordeal, he still thought in terms of law. They were a bunch of people who transgress law, morality, and values in the name of, a, of institution, which is theoretically uh, accountable to law, but is in reality governed by uh, fear, the fear which haunts them. Uh, ben Mhenni, giving evidence of torture and abuse, comments on how his tortured body was, in fact, the site of empathy for his tortures. And he says, I resisted, and everything in me supported me, even my tortured body. I loved my body and loved myself. I loved myself to the point that I did not hate my torturers. I did not resent them. I pitied them and felt angry on their behalf against the system. They, it must be noted here that these other torturers were never held accountable. They have, not been, they have not asked for forgiveness either. But there is a sense in which these victims of theirs felt they had to forgive them. The wider case against the authoritarian system depended on it. And so did the reconstruction of the self. And here I'm going to talk about proleptic forgiveness. There is a particular kind of forgiveness in Ben Mahenni, which is developed in Nakash's reflective meditations, a liberating one, regardless of the process of transitional justice or indeed of public justice. Uh, this, uh, 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 and I quote from, from the novel Cristal, he says, um, the book work was conceived as a work of reflection and standing, sympathy towards others despite everything, of reconstruction of the self. Once the construction of the self is done, one is no longer the same. One is almost ready to leave, to leave prison, that is. One is ready to reunite with the others without hate, without grudges, and even without blame. In a sense, he forgives ahead and regardless of transitional justice, or even justice to court. This seems to me an important intervention in the writing of justice and the unjust authoritarian systems. Hannah Arendt spoke of the liberating nature of forgiveness and its alignment with action rather than reaction. What Nakash recognizes as a liberating moment here authorizes the reconstruction of the self in equally is equally liberating of the, of the uh, forgiven. So as Arendt points out when she says, forgiving, in other words, is the only reaction which does not merely react but acts anew and unexpectedly unconditioned by the act which provoked it and therefore freeing from its consequences both the one who forgives and the one who is forgiven. In this sense, this is, I think, is a sense, or is it the sense in which philosopher Marta Fricke uses the term proleptic forgiving. For her, communicative blame is key to forgiveness, whether the blame is acknowledged, shared or not. What you call gifted forgiveness is not dependent on remorse or shared blame feeling. You don't have to talk and you don't have to ask for forgiveness to get it. Fricke calls this proleptic gifted forgiveness, which works on the premise that the wrongdoer will eventually experience remorse or shared more understanding with the victim. I'm, not, I'm, I'm tempted by these questions, uh, but uh, for example, these questions. What happened then when we put poesis and prolepsis together, these are two rhetorical terms, one of them she uses here. 
In other words, when we put them in the context of justice, the first is the work of reconstruction, reinvention, representation of the world, in this case, injustice, whereas the second works with anticipation and prefiguration of the future. In other words, what happens when we put Naqash or Benmheni in dialogue with Fricka? What does the moment of writing have to do with this? How does it affect proleptic forgiveness? Does it depend on or is affected by whether or not there is a hope of justice? What I'm trying to say here, when you write and you're incarcerated and you have no hope for justice, or later when you're liberated, does it make a difference? Uh, the moments, I argue, are actually radically different, and so are the poetics and politics of writing associated with them. But I must uh, leave these questions unanswered here and conclude by reflecting on the oscillation of these testimonies between the urgency to testify and what I call the allure of style, or between law and literature. In other words, how these testimonies themselves thought about uh, this balance or this tension. Survivors have taken different approaches to the problem of representation. Benimheni debates his choices at the beginning of his book by saying, I hesitated between several entry points. For example, to tell the story starting from the end, then uh, move back and forth and let my pen basically choose. Or shall I start with the moment of arrest, which is a very common uh, trope. He also mentions, of course, uh, the problems with writing this and hesitating whether what he's going to say is going to cause offense or, or increase the pain of his, his, his friends. Zemzmi expresses this anxiety. He, he is keen to steer clear from what he called the rules of autobiography in order to avoid what he called creating heroism, or in other words, calling attention to himself and appears as a writer. He doesn't want to appear as a writer. Instead, he prefers what he called expression to impression. His desire to document and reject the censorship of memory led him to, uh, quote, sacrifice the literary craft. Samir Sesi, another uh, detainee, he's an Islamist, uh, describes uh, known torture techniques. He has subjected, for example, has been subjected to beatings. We call it in Arabic falqa, hanging. Uh, waterboarding, whipping, and so on. He describes these in these terms, and I think uh, probably uh, I wanted you to l look at his text for specific reasons. Um, he says, when I woke up from the sting of a rod, and like one of the pillars of Ad, my head was dipped repeatedly in filthy water and then brought down uh, on the ground, a whip caressed my body, turning it into a canvas on which the torturer painted his creation. I, the italics are mine. Uh, I could, it could be argued here that through metaphor and simile, oblique expression, ironic tone, and research register, the force of the account is rather watered down rather than pointed up. But it seems to me that writing political pain and prison trauma there must be some given into metaphor. You can't really write it without metaphor, is, is my argument. You, some given into the allure of style and the temptation to exceed testimony. Or put diff differently, writing is perhaps guided by the desire and will to make one last and hopefully lasting stand against the law. It is also an attempt to say that truth is more than factual accounts of it. Otherwise, why write a memoir when you can have 
a good lawyer. And there is a long tradition in this. I don't, I'm finishing in two minutes. And there is a long tradition in this. In Arabic, so much of political pain and prison trauma have been expressed in poetry and song that testimonies feel compelled to lean on this long tradition. What I'm trying to do is say basically when you pick up these memoirs, they present themselves as factual and trying to, but they all refer to an existing literature whether it's medieval, whether it's uh, contemporary, whether it's uh, Pablo Neruda, or whether it's filled with this kind of reference. Fleece is not an exception when he evokes, this is, this is the person who basically, in his memoir, he puts the letters that his parents received from him, he puts the receipts, he puts the, um, the, the, the dates he was incarcerated, he puts all the details that a lawyer would need, but at the same time, fills it with poetry and other things. So he's not an exception when he evokes numerous precedents which inspire him to resist and write. Among these, he cites a poem by the Egyptian Mahmoud al-Shadili. And that poem, I want you to see it. It says, if they strung a rope or even a million ropes around my neck, I will untie them, and from the ropes I will braid a pen which writes letters longing for the moment of salvation. In prison, he would have, of course, heard, not read this. He's not allowed to read. And also, this poem was actually not a poem. It was a song by Sheikh Imam. Fleece, of course, would have heard it and sang it. And we are remembered here that writing, for all it enables, may actually silence the sounds of incarceration and fails to translate them. But we can speak them. So here I have the Arabic. As you read the Arabic, لو على أولي مشنقة أو حتى مليون مشنقة حوالين رأبتي حفكها وأخذ حبلها ولفها واصنع ألم يكتب حروف متشوقة لساعد خلاص. Thank you.